You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 272 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Today is the day Paracelsus died. Paracelsus was one of the most important figures of history, at least in terms of the history of alchemy. And I did an episode dedicated only to him, episode 131, if you want to check that out. Now in this episode I'm joined by Anthony Tyler, author of The Dive Manual, Empirical Investigations of Mysticism. And since we will be touching a bit on alchemy, I thought it was apt to release this episode on the day that Paracelsus died. Here's Anthony Tyler. So thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, I, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm happy to have any sort of esoteric conversations whenever I get the chance. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and, and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I... Uh, I'm from Anchorage, Alaska. I'm here in California at the moment, and I just came out with a book. I've done a bit of journalism in the past, uh, published some fiction work. I helped develop the website. Um, I was not the main spearhead, but I was one of the contributors and uh, like co-developers of uh, the the nonpartisan uh, journalism website, The Last American Vagabond. That does pretty well today still, but I, I'm inactive with it. Um, I moved on from that to um, eventually published this book, which came out in February. It's called uh, Dive Manual, Empirical Investigations of Mysticism. And it goes into a lot of different things, but a good starting point, uh, because it's such a strong recurring theme throughout the book, is um, alchemy, uh, specifically of the, uh, the, the, like the psychodynamic sort of alchemy. Um, and there's a lot of uh, research into... Uh, but not exclusively uh, like the Jungian archetypes and um, evolutionary psychology, you know, comparative religion. Looking at uh, a lot of my research is uh, looking for biological um, mechanisms, you know, things like um, dreams or in other cases, uh, things like epilepsy. Um, there's all sorts of sleep paralysis. There are all sorts of biological mechanisms and underpinnings for um, spiritualism as we know it. And that's not to say that that's where the trail ends by any means. I'm not some sort of naysayer materialist determinist by any stretch. But I do think that um, if we're being empirical about this in general, um, this is where the trail begins. You know, this is how you know, whether or not these things are sentient, which is kind of another question that's an interesting one. But, you know, set that aside. And the fact that there are, um, you know, in essence, we can get into the the technicality of this more, but there are, in effect, you know, spiritual uh, dimensions um, and things like, you know, just look at how how radically dreams have affected our society, um, or like uh, not just society, but world history as we know it. Uh, so, so yeah, there's a lot to be said about. Uh, just simply the imagination for starters. It's really not just some fanciful Freudian wish fulfillment. There's a lot more 
there's a lot more intrinsic value there than a lot of people would care to think. So what do you mean by calling your book a dive manual? <laughs> it's a good question. So it's got a, a lot of the metaphor, you know, since there's so much um, alchemical symbolism throughout the book, you know, there's a, a strong running theme of the polarity. And that's something that I uh, tend to strongly associate with the uh, the trees of life and death with like uh, found in um, not just uh, like uh, Jewish Kabbalah, but, you know, the Hermetic Kabbalah, with, you know, involved with the uh, the Renaissance and then from there on out. Um, so but a great metaphor for that, which I found throughout my study and something that really stuck with me is just kind of the ebb and flow of the shoreline, um, conscious, unconscious um land water you know positive negative um masculine feminine but and especially in uh the american cancel culture they you get into talk about masculine and feminine people uh some some people just snub their nose at it but um it's really not so much some sort of um antiquated sexual orientation you know the symbols go so much deeper and there is a a gender connotation to it but there's so much more as i'm i'm well aware you know you know it goes much deeper the divine masculine and feminine are more so like the the proton and electron um more directly than they are uh the uh how we look at um how people pigeonhole um the modern definitions people get too hemmed up in uh in those kind of social identity politics and that's really not what it's about uh, but it's a, so so diving into the water, you know, the, you have to um, in some cases when you're in the open water, so to speak, uh, you, you're kind of screwed either way. So you have to learn to dive or drown. You know, you got to figure out what's going on. It, uh, you might as well dive rather than just stay in the open water waiting to die. Uh, so and diving, you know, diving into the unconscious mind, the the collective consciousness, so to speak, this network of um of uh, sociocultural imagery and symbols and you know because symbols are um they're not just again it's not just like simple wish fulfillment or anything uh when you look into the like the evolutionary or you know ev evolution has its own um like specific connotations to us so you don't even have to take it that far you just look at it in terms of mere adaptation which really no one disagree with, uh, disagrees with, everyone adapts. So when you look at um, adaptation as a whole, um, you know, the human brain has very literally developed these faculties of the imagination and symbolism and, you know, therefore language and other things um, so that it can adapt to its environment and, and propel itself much further. I mean, and it's, it's you know, it's a fairly straightforward concept, but all, all too many people forget it these days that, you know, there's no waste in nature. Everything has a purpose. So uh, we need to learn to dive into the unconscious mind and and uh, start um, deciphering the symbols in our brains, so to speak, because there's a lot of uh, existential material there. There's a lot of stuff to be learned about ourselves, you know, dreams in effect uh, whether or not you want to get spiritual, you know, I'm definitely spiritual in my own ways, but just like technically speaking from a research point of view, dreams are some sort of like neurological purge process. It's um, uh, it, it catharsis, you know, it could be very positive, like transcendental catharsis, or even nightmares have their value. It's uh, 
It's, um, you know, it's the unconscious mind trying to convey messages to you that um, are pertinent to your personal experience, but are not things that you readily encounter in your natural physical environment. So you have trouble confronting them, you know? Yes. Uh, and I, I, I wouldn't worry too much about what you said. It, I think history will probably view the postmodern feminist as sexist. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. If if somebody has ever studied, which maybe modern feminists should do, uh, if they have ever studied the occult or esoteric writings, uh, I mean, I've done it for all my life almost. As, uh, I can't. I mean, I think I started unconsciously when I was twelve, uh, but um, in in all those texts and in all that uh, wealth of knowledge, uh, you always encounter a very powerful and uh, strong uh, vibe from the feminine i mean it's never been it's never looked down on it's usually worshipped and it's uh, usually very powerful and something you turn to for help and guidance uh, so i i actually think that uh, it's not something you should uh, try and avoid because uh, these days you know i know At, at least the people who try to be as PC as possible are trying to uh, remove the masculine and the feminine. I don't, I'm not sure what they're trying to achieve, but uh, you can't really uh, avoid it because it's 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 got nothing to do with um, one having power over the the other. Yeah, it's become um, a really um, inflated pretentious honestly point of view in uh in american culture i'm all for i mean in western culture it, everywhere it's global at this point but um um and i'm all for people having their own uh you know individual liberties you know be who you want to be but it's gotten to the state where again where it's this cancel culture mentality and it's no longer become in so many cases um a some sort of fight for individual liberties or equality it's become um Uh, censorship and it's become censorship that's honestly entirely ill-founded it doesn't have any real basis in um, um, psychological or biological sciences I mean yeah and not to get into this too much but it is an interesting point in relating to the symbolism um, I mean it's like sexual orientation is one thing but Your physical gender is just a matter of biology, it, you know, and people tend to conflate the two too often. I mean, biologically, physically speaking, there's men and women and you can identify however you like, but let's not <laughs> let's not do away with the clinical terms entirely. Why? What is the purpose of that? But anyway, I digress. Um, well, it's interesting because uh, I, I've been thinking lately why why? Because there seems to be a very effective uh, movement that can actually cancel people. I'm just surprised that they're not canceling, especially in America, you know, canceling those bankers who destroyed the homes of, of many people or, or the people who start wars or the people who keep the medicine expensive for poor people. I mean, these are the people that, that should be canceled. <laughs> Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Those three right there, those are the top dogs that people should be really looking at. And no, there's there's hardly any of that. Granted, the whole idea of conspiracy theory, which I I I say using the fullest sense of the word, the good 
and the bad, you know, the verified and the ridiculous. But conspiracy theory in general has become a lot more common um, these days, but it's not still not very focused. Um, and unfortunately, cancel culture hasn't really, um, you know, there's, there are a few interesting segues like, uh, the whole Epstein, uh, case and death and, uh, and now, um, Jelaine Maxwell being under custody. And, uh, these things have made it into the modern zeitgeist, but it's, um, it's still unfortunately focused on, <laughs> you know, like canceling comedians and celebrities and it's to, to no particular end either. You know, there's, there, there doesn't seem to be much of an end result in mind. Like it's, I, I don't understand how they expect to be, um, completely, I don't know. It's, they're fighting against, uh, nature at this point. You're not going to be able to censor people and human nature. Um, in so many cases, if you tell it not to do something and you're just a jerk about it, like you're not engaging or debating, you're just giving it a direct order, you know, um, uh, without any explanation, human nature is often going to just not follow that because you're just being so crass and, um, uh, you know, like not forward thinking about it. So, and that's really what's happening. And now we have this wild schism going on where, um, it, it, you know, people are on such, such differing sides of the fence. It's getting, um, in more and more ways, it's getting pretty wild. We'll see what happens. But, um, I think it is uh, a spiritual starvation of sorts, because I think that, uh, uh, if you manage to cancel somebody, it would, uh, uh, bring your life some meaning. I mean, a meaning you think is valuable. At least I remember I, when I was uh, 16, I studied journalism in, in high school and uh, we uh, I mean the people in my class they were doing different journalistic uh, articles but me and my friend we wanted to be like Woodrow and Bernstein you know, we wanted to to expose the company and you know like really bury them and I remember we, we found this company and we and I remember very clearly that we couldn't really find any problem with it but we still wanted to destroy them and and because the rush of like doing it and i always remember that feeling and i think it's something like that uh, granted at the time when i felt like that i was 15 but <laughs> uh you grow out of it hopefully but maybe some people don't but i think it could be a spiritual starvation because if you f have if you feel spiritually fulfilled uh you don't really care about those things you know like if somebody says something that offends you i just turn the channel you know absolutely and i yeah you really hit the nail on the head and i've read this worded in other ways elsewhere like a great example being um the uh the 33 degree freemason manly p hall i don't know if you're familiar with much of his work you know he wrote like the secret teachings of all ages um i uh certainly there's a there's a a power network involved with uh with freemasonry just like in the way of the vatican but in many cases you know freemasonry does have a very interesting and authentic history and um uh, manly p hall a very transparent um disciplined even empirical researcher um he got a wealth of information out there and he didn't tow any hard lines he just uh you know 
uh, investigated the research in comparative religion and modern science. And he said a lot uh, to to the extent that you just said there where it um, and, you know, I've looked at this in my own life in the past. I can definitely uh, relate in some ways to to that feeling you had when you were 15. And, yeah, I think it's just run rampant today where, um, you know, political slash social activism has its place but there's there's certain um like personal like maturity prerequisites involved in order to really be able to do that with any sort of use honestly um and you you know the first thing honestly again it's not to get on some sort of pulpit or anything but this is just kind of psychology um so psychologically speaking when you start you know, this gets into the projection process even, which has a lot to do with the book Dive Manual. Um, you start to engage and develop opinions more and more um, about uh, the world around you, especially when you're young, but definitely not only when you're young. You know, it happens all throughout. Um, you find that your relationship to things in the environment, I mean, inevitably stir something within you. It's a it's a two way street, and when you probe, uh, not just the the physical tether, so to speak, that you're associated with, you probe more of your motivations and your inspirations and emotional states tied to these things. You find that there are, is a lot of um, like psychological inertia, so to speak, that isn't even necessarily related with all these social events or political movements or whatever there there's probably some association but yeah if you don't take the excuse me if you don't take the time to just kind of understand your own mechanism your own mental mechanisms and motivations you're just going to be forever led by the nose um, of your by your projection process and yeah that's happening so much in today's culture and um, I honestly think I can't shake the fact that I think it has so much to do with the internet and modern technology. But, you know, um, in the long run, I think this is, it's, it, this just shows why it's important now more than ever to, uh, as I was saying at the beginning, um, learn to dive into these things and acquaint yourself because, um, all this stuff that we do not understand about our, mental our ex our experience in um in our existence um all that is still you know there's so much in our brains in our experience that we are not necessarily aware of on a conscious level but it's still filed away it's still computed and processed somewhere and this is essentially i mean th this is the network of the collective consciousness um you don't even have to get too metaphysical with the collective consciousness although you know, I, I, I tend to, but I mean, even just from a material perspective, I mean, the fact that the collective consciousness, what that word really entails more than like some etheric space is just a network um, that we can communicate with and like how each, each ind individual person's brain is like a synapse in a neurological network essentially. And um, yeah, the more you look into how symbols um, <clears throat> relate to your own individual psychology, the more you see how they relate to, you know, what, what you would call sociology, sociology more and more. And, 
Um, you know, this kind of gets into things like mimetics and how um, ideas and symbols can spread like viruses. Um, it, virus being a, a good and bad thing, you know, it can be either or. And hell, it can even be both sometimes. But the fact that uh, there is a virility, um, a, a, that kind of viral nature to the um, to our imaginative process is something that science and uh, esotericism has noted for a long time. And it's something that uh, we can't really shake. And it's uh, it's very interesting. I mean, people want to be as materialist as they like with modern science, but the fact that these things are around more than ever is painfully obvious to the, um, to the chagrin of the materialist. I mean, uh, like here in America, uh, Catholic exorcisms are on the rise, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not necessarily saying that there are, uh, is, um, uh, all the use for classic exorcisms, but there, um, I think there. I think there's some sort of merit there, but in any case, point being, you know, especially with sleep paralysis. And then if you really want to get, um, broaden that umbrella, you look at things like ufology, which often kind of, uh, starts to bleed into like people's religious culty kind of mentality. Um, uh, mythology and folklore and symbolism and the imagination as we know it is still so prevalent. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And, um, and scary in some ways, you know, these things can lead, can lead humanity by the nose in, um, very negative ways. You know, it can lead us down rabbit holes. Um, it can, can toy with our heads if we, uh, self-indulge too much, but, uh, probing these things and having like a, a good hard look in the mirror, so to speak, like that's what it's all about. You know, that's what the alchemical, the psychological alchemical process is, is, looking at that lead and refining it, you know, turning it into gold, you know, there's a real reality to that. Like some people say, follow your bliss, but I prefer to say, follow your blisters, man, because you got to get the hard work done in order to really make any progress in the grand scheme. So you mainly looked at uh, Jungian alchemy. Have you, have you looked anything at uh, more classical traditional alchemy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, uh, I've studied a bit of hermeticism and, Um, I've looked a lot into um, some of the, like I've definitely looked into the classical alchemical texts, many of which um, Jung references, like uh, the, the Faust Gautier and um, um, the works of Dante, you know, including the Divine Comedy. And um, um, I really, I definitely have an affinity for Hermeticism. I don't particularly subscribe to any one thing, but if I had to pick, it would probably That would probably be the one. And I've also found a lot of um, interest in in Buddhism over the years for a long time, which I find to have many of the same alchemical principles. Have you tried any alchemical practical work, like laboratory work? Um, I mean, I've always been a um, a bit of a botanist, so but not not so. I've always kept those things in mind and. Um, extraction processes and everything else but no never any uh never any practical stuff i don't discredit the uh and, and how practical are you, are you talking like uh like ritual and ceremony or more like metallurgy no i mean like uh, trying to uh, perform alchemical transmutations like 
working with uh, any matter and trying to uh, purify it and make it into its gold state? Yeah, no, not not particularly. Um, there has been some bleed over into, like I said, uh, things like botany and whatnot, but never in a um, a disciplined um, alchemical like uh not in the way of like the traditional alchemists necessarily i don't discredit that uh there there is plenty of um um research and and development to be done there you know that it does have its own validity but i've always been more interested in um the 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 philosophical because you know one of the one of the cornerstone premises of alchemy is the uh before the alchemist can really uh, go, uh, take part in um, physical transmutation of any kind of like the exterior environment you know you have to take part in that internal alchemical process and refine yourself so you know I'm still fairly young too um, you know I'm in my mid-20s so uh, much of my research and my personal journey so far has been uh, the uh, distilling um at the very least attempting to distill the uh, my my individual nature first and foremost well uh, uh, one uh, uh, practical advice that uh, practical alchemists uh, always use is that uh, if you actually decide you can take something simple as distilling water if you decide to distill water and making it as pure as possible while you're doing that process because it takes a while uh, if you're at the same time, you're supposed to meditate on distilling yourself, purifying yourself. And when you are doing that practical practice, uh, magical things start happening because it starts to create synchronicities and insight into your internal way. So they they are very connected. And then after you've done a simple thing like distilling water, you can move on to something more advanced you know but as an example yeah that's uh that's a that's a great a piece of info right there um it, it doesn't sound entirely new to me but it's something that i i hadn't really taken into account lately and you know i uh just to be um uh just to be candid um a lot of what i would consider you know in that regard i guess you could say i do have at least a, a little bit of um practical alchemical um practice so to speak because uh a lot of that botany has not been exclusively but has included um cannabis and you know they're growing it for uh like legally um for uh dispensaries and whatnot and um uh, doing that on my own as well um going through processes of because you know i look at it from very much a medicinal point of view um and uh, some of those things take a long time, you know, the whole process of growing a plant and then uh, distilling it into um, what are your different tinctures or oils. Um, it can take a long, long time. You know, it could be the days of a process. And um, there were many instances where I just kind of didn't really do much else but that process. I didn't want to distract myself. I wanted to be fully encompassed in it. And and it did become a, a meditative experience. And lately, you know, I've moved. Uh, my life has changed quite a bit, so I haven't, um, I haven't had much um, like material or or things in general to uh, to do many 
practical alchemical studies lately. But, but you know, in, in that respect, I can say that I, I have done at least a little bit and, and yeah, it's, um, um, I, yeah, I have, I have a, a, a great affinity for, um, alchemy in general. Um, I think it's, I don't know, it's one of the best, um, metaphysical disciplines, um, it, when it comes to, um, explaining and evaluating, you know, polarity in general, because you can't really get around polarity and duality with the, the human experience. And I feel like that's just not touched on enough, um, uh, like exoterically, especially with new age. That's a real problem I have with quote unquote new age as we know it. It's just the whole follow your bliss thing. It's so nonsensical and, um, it's just really half hearted. I mean, it's good to have bliss in mind. You should be striving for peace and contentment, but the bliss that they go, the, the, the way that so many people go about it is, is just more of a useful idiot mentality than anything. You're just, a, you're just another cog in a machine. And it's uh, it's not getting any, anybody anywhere, including yourself. So I, I haven't really heard that uh, phrase or that uh, mantra before. W- what do they mean? Follow your bliss? Oh yeah, man. Oh man, I'm almost sorry to tell you, just because it's so silly. Um, it's definitely huge in America, and um, it comes from that movie slash book. It was like a huge bestseller movie and book it was like a documentary type thing and it was called the secret and it was about the law of attraction have you heard of the law of attraction it's pretty much the same thing oh i I know the book i know the book i I didn't read it but i know about the law of attraction yeah like i said it's good to have like peace and contentment in mind but but the whole the whole law of attraction sentiment that just just think blissful thoughts and bliss will come to you um and in so many ways that leads to um, I don't know, just, just a total misunderstanding of not only psychology, but physics, like people get into quantum theory and stuff and, and quant- quantum physics is interesting, but it's, it's, in, it's, uh, it's something that we, not even the quantum physicists understand very well yet. So it's, uh, well, I mean, the law of attraction uh, works. It's just the way, the way they, uh, presented it, it, they made it a bit like a, a popcorn movie. It's not really, actually, I, I started watching the documentary, but I turned it off because the only examples they gave was, well, imagine you want a nice Porsche and a, a nice car, then you imagine it. And then after many years or whatever, you will get that. And I'm thinking like, I, I'm not so motivated in getting a car. I mean, like, or if you want a lot of money or if you want a good job, I mean, the law of attraction could work maybe for those things, but that's really like wasting the law, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, uh, yeah, 100%. And, um, the mechanics they go about, um, they, they, they go about using to explain the law of attraction with is not something that's very tenable either. I certainly agree that, um, uh, there are, there is legitimacy in what you could call a law of attraction. Um, but just because of that, uh, that, that connotation, that, that new age, follow your bliss kind of connotation involved. I like to say oftentimes more of like a law of suggestibility because this kind of gets into like the hypnotic, um, uh, or even like meditative, you know, trance state, so to speak, the whole, 
mystical experience. Um, I don't know if they mentioned it in the in the documentary because I didn't finish it. But uh, the law of attraction goes the other way also. So like if you have a mortal fear of getting raped, guess what? Right. Yeah. And and you know I I think um, I think in some ways you know the we can um we can have pitfalls in our mentality and we can um because we are ready for negative things to happen we might not take as much precaution but again um the the extent that people take this to where is um is a bit extreme um you know like it's um <laughs> it's a it's a very fine line between um understanding that someone just in this example like might not not even like like a you know just the broadest broadest example in general of people uh, uh getting into some sort of mishap um perhaps they didn't take as much precaution but then in the same um on the other hand there's also just full blown victim blaming which also can um um be a disservice as well so and that yeah and that that kind of just calls back to like cancel culture in general like people just are really happy to point the finger um and um it uh i don't know you know sometimes there are things people can't control that's why i like to um you know that's why i like to consider it more of a of a suggestibility because if we if we tune our minds in certain ways um through through a variety of disciplines uh especially when you get into things like mystical states of consciousness like trances hypnosis meditation even psychedelics for that matter um you know the um we we kind of reach the threshold of um uh like we get to kind of like the workbench of our psyche you know like where we're at the the beakers and the the mortars and pestles of our of our um of our cognitive process and and when you start to tinker with that you start to go through those processes a little bit more and you start to direct yourself uh, with with new mechanisms and new ways of thinking that um, you maybe you were aware of them to begin with, but you certainly didn't have uh, the full extent of their faculties. And, uh, you know, once you have like a better understanding of just who you are and again, your motivations and instincts and drives then you can really direct yourself in ways that um, aren't even necessarily conscious. You know, it's almost like a soldier, like training himself or themselves for the heat of war. Um, you do that in life. You can train yourself to uh, be very in tune with certain things, certain um, goals, certain motivations. And in, in that in that respect, I think um, you can definitely attract things into your life like that's for sure and and if you take it far enough in the negative direction you know like i guess if if we're coming up with examples for the 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 relevance of how you attract things into your life um and uh the negative end as uh, for one example sleep paralysis is a good one uh explained through the projection process because you know you, your body's being shut down for the night and uh you're no longer having the same kind of sensory input to your body and because of um what it essentially boils down to is um trauma related stress whether it's a big impactful traumatic moment that you're processing still or it's incremental over time and something has snowballed into a big thing but it's chronic like traumatic stress and it jars your sleep 
um, process and you wake up in the middle of it. And since your body is neurologically firing again, or your brain is, um, you're having a, a sensory experience, but your body's already been shut down for the night. So you're thus projecting your physical, like the physical landscape of your body somewhere else. Now that only it, and, and and what is that in the long run? That's essentially, um, and again, I'm not saying this is where the trail ends. It's not where the trail ends, but this is where the trail begins. You are projecting some sort of, um, you're manifesting. You could even say attracting if you really want to, um, this kind of, uh, experience because it's, um, it's like your, in the way that it's related to stress, it's like your body giving off, um, alarm bells, you know, like the same, the same reasons we have nightmares. I mean, in, in a sense, you attract those nightmares to you, you could say, uh, because it's ways of experiencing and adapting, um, in a best case scenario, not to take away from the horrifying aspects of, uh, bad experiences like that. I mean, there is, it sucks. And it's unfortunate that anyone has a deal with something like sleep paralysis, but ultimately, um, best case scenario, that's, that really is an opportunity to learn. I mean, there are ways to get around those negative experiences and all you got to do is, um, be open to it and go through the steps, you know, to essentially the alchemical process. You got to refine that lead. You got to turn it into gold somehow. Also, the law of attraction could be more effective if you apply it to other people, meaning that like in Buddhism, for instance, I mean, many people forget when when you have that famous prayer in Buddhism about achieving enlightenment. I think most people miss out the fact that you're praying to achieve enlightenment for others. It's, it's not for yourself. So it's it's for others, so others can be free from suffering. It doesn't say, I want to be enlightened so I can be free. It doesn't say that. So maybe a law of attraction for somebody else could be uh, very effective. If everybody did that, e- even if it didn't work, it would work uh, in, on some level because if everybody thought about everybody else, you know, problem solved. Absolutely. That's a great point to make. And um, on that kind of same that same note, um, a lot, uh, some more of, uh, the like alchemical influence that I've had, uh, a lot in the East, along with Buddhism has been, uh, Taoism. And there's a lot of that sentiment in Taoism as well. And I think that Taoism especially, um, touches at the heart of that kind of attraction slash suggestibility process, that whole essence of the Tao. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, in many ways, like again, I don't I don't consider myself one thing, but um, Taoism has been uh, def- such a heavy influence on me throughout the years. That was one of the first things I got into, like as a young teenager and stuff, just uh, in terms of philosophy and whatnot. And um, um, it's yeah, it's as relevant as it ever was. Um, I think that uh, I think that uh, the East had some really interesting sentiments. That's for sure. Even the story of the Buddha reaching enlightenment, you know, meditating under the Bodhi, um, there's the interesting piece that he's confronted by the demoness, uh, Mara, underneath the Bodhi. And uh, it's very, it's at night. It's almost very much not to the letter because uh, he's not sleeping in a bed or anything, but it's very much reminiscent of uh, this kind of like sleep paralysis projection process. And 
Um, you know, the more you get into that, you could like, you could probe, uh, demonology a little bit more and, uh, demonology, even in the modern era is still something that we can't quite shy away from. And it's, if anything, it's become more and more fascinating. And again, I, I we can't, science at least can't speak, uh, cannot speak to the sentience of these things. But, um, you know, look at, uh, like a temporal lobe epilepsy's relationship to, the mystical experience throughout history, you know, people with, um, uh, temporal lobe epilepsy. Now that modern science can understand it is, uh, the thing that's specifically related to people having, um, not only like physical seizures, but it's concentrated in that part of the brain where, um, all our, so much of our like symbolic analysis and perceptibility comes from. And so when, when you have the seizures localized to that part of the brain, um, you get very specific mystical phenomena. And there are people, there are, are, are uh, religious visionaries, you know, spiritual visionaries throughout history that have, um, have been afflicted by temporal lobe epilepsy specifically. Um, in some cases, we, we don't know for sure if it was temporal lobe, but given the state of their, um, their experiences and their symptoms, it's pretty obvious. Like it said that Dante had it. Um, the great writer Dostoevsky had it. Uh, it's, uh, people said that Julius Caesar had it and there's a, there's, there's a lot I could keep going, but on the same end or on the inverted side, like the opposite side of that coin, temporal lobe epilepsy has been related with uh, demonology throughout history as well. Even up into the modern era, you know, there's the very classic case of, um, Catholic possession and exorcism in Germany in the 1970s of, um, Annalise Michelle. And, uh, that was an exorcism that, um, process that lasted for years and resulted in the deterioration of this woman. And she had all the classic symptoms aside from like levitation. It was a very well-documented, extremely bizarre, interesting case. And, and yeah, she had temporal lobe epilepsy and during her seizures, she, she was experiencing, sometimes it would be divine revelations of like the Virgin Mary and other things. But fortunately, most of the time it started to snowball. She started having these, um, uh, demonic experiences and encounters more and more. And then another interesting thing on that note is, um, how many, like you could find several prolific serial killers throughout history that have had, um, epilepsy. And in some cases we can verify that it's been temporal lobe epilepsy, like the, um, the infamous, uh, night stalker here in California, Richard Ramirez. He was the guy who was like praying to Satan before he would go in and murder people like he had temporal lobe epilepsy. It's very strange. And, uh, it's a curious note. So again, you know, just to reiterate, cause we've gone through different material for the listeners. Like this is not where the trail ends. This, uh, I think this is where the trail begins. And this is kind of an open, it, you know, it's, uh, open to interpretation from there, whether or not you think like how far you want to take a concept of angels and demons, but the fact that these archetypes, um, have such direct adaptational, tangible value to the human experience is undeniable. And it's something that, you know, uh, p uh skeptics like to say that, um, uh, people just use these symbols purely to interpret like their past and, you know, uh, make a concept of, uh, like their self image, so to speak. And that has a lot to do with it, but it's not just that, you know, it's not us 
um, leaving a trail of symbols behind us exclusively. These symbols propel us in many ways. We, they're leading us in many ways. Um, and that kind of speaks to the viral nature of the symbols, both good and bad. So I think that, um, if anything, science definitely cannot disprove that these things are not sentient in some way yet. It can't prove it, but it can't disprove it either. The jury is still out for sure. You should listen to an episode I did, uh, number 231, called Evil Archaeology. It's about, uh, well, it, uh, my guest is uh, an archaeologist, uh, and she uh, wanted to write an, an, a historical and archaeological book about demons and curses and that. And she wrote uh, a lot about, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember in the film The Exorcist, the demon there is called Pazuzu. And uh, anyway, uh, I can't remember the exact details, but basically when she was writing this book about this demon, uh, she had uh, like uh, a lot of weird things going on and she even ended up in the hospital. And um, uh, of course, she can't prove anything, but it, uh, it, it it's an interesting story. And another thing I wanted to say, you mentioned Buddha there with uh, Mara coming. What I like about that, story is that uh, uh, Buddha doesn't achieve enlightenment on his own because he asks uh, the earth to bear witness and uh, that's why he puts his hand on the ground uh, and uh, that's when he achieves uh, his awakening and so he he doesn't it's important also because uh, many people especially when you talk about um, psychedelics with people they said oh well I'm gonna do it on my own and uh, I believe that nobody can do anything on their own not even the Buddha because he had to have a, a witness yeah absolutely that's a that, that that really is a cornerstone of um, of metaphysics and the alchemical process in general like you're so right you can't you can't lose your tether to the uh, the outside world in some way and you're in your altruism for it. Um, because, uh, I mean, ultimately that's how you get, yeah, that's how you get the classical. If you, if you do lose your tether to the outside world, that's how you get the classical delusional narcissistic occultist. And, um, yeah, that, uh, the, the, that kind of narcissistic self-indulgent occultist is, uh, just as annoying as, any blind sheep religionist or new age cultist. I mean, people just take these things to such extremes sometimes. Um, Because to achieve uh, enlightenment uh, or uh, that state of bliss, you kind of need to uh, go beyond your own ego, right? And uh, so when you say that you're going to do it on your own, you kind of failed before you started. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just you, you you didn't frame the question right to begin with. You fail right out the gate. Um, so yeah, um, uh, the you know for, for for people in general, um, I think that um, you know I've always found dreams so fascinating because dreams is something that everyone can relate to, even if they don't dream very often. Um, they dream at least sometimes, you know. We dream every night, but people remembering their dreams, and um, yeah, you know, it's uh, and and then the more you look into dreams, the more you find that people's brains really do work 
so similarly. And, um, and it's really not just, um, again, like us, um, leaving a trail of symbols behind us. It's not pure, um, just an echo of physical stimulus. There are things like, you know, the archetypes, like the divine masculine and feminine and the shadow and, uh, the persona. Uh, I mean, these things and others, they're all very intrinsic in us. And, uh, in order to understand those things to their fullest extent, you need to understand how they, um, how they carry over and relate mass scale to, uh, the human experience overall, because if you're just using your own personal experience to gauge these things exclusively, God, you're missing so you're missing the you know you're analyzing a drop in the ocean so to speak and that's not going to do anyone any good you got to analyze both you know the microcosm and the macrocosm when it comes to dreams the law of attraction actually is quite effective because if you uh, try and focus on things when you're awake uh, you it can appear in your dream to your advantage i remember i mean i've uh, Uh, worked with psychedelics for I don't know uh, a decade or more and uh, I never really ever had any dream that could ever be close to anything I've experienced on psychedelics so that was one way of me of proving that it wasn't in my brain Uh, but uh, I listened to Terence McKenna and he mentioned that uh, if you ever get a chance to smoke DMT in a dream uh, it, it uh, could be quite intense, and it and uh, it only took uh, it didn't take long, if, if a couple of months of me having that idea in my mind, and then within a matter of two weeks, twice did I sit in an ayahuasca ceremony in a dream, and I did the first dream. I did experience it was very similar to what. I experienced in in let's say reality uh, and in the other the second ceremony the dream uh, well took a left turn and uh, well the dream just went crazy so it couldn't really uh, it didn't really become a psychedelic experience but uh, I did the, the dream did begin with me sitting in an ayahuasca circle but it never really got got there but still uh, it, it was funny how it appeared once I, I I asked for it, you know. That is very interesting. Yeah, and 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 your yeah, it's it's totally true. Um, that that attraction process, like especially you know, if um y- you could be so direct as um like asking yourself a question before you go to sleep, like keeping that premise in your mind and kind of incubating it, as some people say, and. Maybe you won't have some sort of dreamlike answer immediately that night, but just continue to do that, especially if the question is pertinent enough, um, and you'll get an answer of some kind. You'll definitely dream about it, and it will, um, you know. And then you just do something as simple for starters as, um, you know, you write down the dream, and then just kind of make like a list of the nouns, you know, people, places, things, and. Uh, and then from there, you know, look into the symbolism of these nouns. What is the what is the sociocultural history behind these things? What is the uh, what do the mystics of antiquity say in many cases? And then you kind of plug it back in, and you can see your dreams in a in a whole different light. Um, and then and there's um, I've always heard there's this old saying that um, 
if you make eye contact with something in a dream, it usually means that there's something on the other side, like sentience, um, because so often you don't make that eye contact in dreams. And, and other times, like if you read something in a dream, uh, that means it's very important as well, because we usually don't read things in our dreams and like, uh, nor do we usually dream of smoking DMT or having an ayahuasca ceremony. So that's really cool. Um, and what you said there about eye contact, I hadn't really heard before and it uh, reminds me, I'll, I'll tell it really shortly, but uh, one time when I was in the Amazon, uh, I hadn't, I was gonna drink ayahuasca, but I hadn't had the first ceremony yet. So it was like the first night where you're just sleeping in the rainforest. And I had a really vivid dream of a jaguar uh, walking on a branch out. You know, when you dream of the place you're in, like, so I, I was in my bed where I was sleeping. So that was the dream setting. And the, the jaguar walked on this branch and it, it turned his head and looked straight into my eyes. And it shocked me so much that I woke up. I didn't think much of it. And then the um, later on in the ayahuasca ceremonies, there was a point when I was having a really, really horrible time. And the jaguar turned up in the visuals or in the, in the ceremony. And uh, without making a long story longer, basically... Uh, uh, The, that event answered a lot of things and it made me go from having a horrible experience to having like a, a aha moment kind of thing. Uh, so, uh, and it was at that point I remember the Jaguar in the dream I had, you know, in the beginning. It's almost like it knew I was coming and it was like, I, I, I'll be seeing you later, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. I, I love that story. Um That really is kind of like a cherry on top of um, more or less what we've uh, all of what we've talked about thus far, and that reminds me of a really cool um, like anecdote from the study of this neuroscientist uh, V. S. Ramachandran. He wrote uh, the book Phantoms in the Brain. It came out in like 2000 or something, and um, it deals with abnormal psychology that often bleeds into uh, these like like you know like thresholds of a mystical experience like you know he goes into things like temporal lobe epilepsy and <clears throat> while it's not in the book he's also done research into sleep paralysis and stuff so but he also uh the the specific antidote that i wanted to share because i find that this really relates to um the concept of the jaguar in your experiences is uh his his rehabilitation of patients with phantom limb Now, um, phantom limb is super interesting for many reasons, but, um, you know, it doesn't, it, for anyone who's unfamiliar with it, it's essentially where you don't have a limb, but you have the whole neurological experience of that limb. And in the vast majority of cases, it's, uh, it's like a cold, hard, stiff mass. It's almost like if your arm was there, but you didn't use it at all. So it was just really hard and painful, um, undeveloped and um, uh, people have that even if they were born without limbs which is very interesting and and it really speaks to again like these symbols uh, propelling us in some ways and not just us using them um, and how Ramachandran started to figure out how to um, rehabilitate 
uh, this neurological feeling is he would use what he called like a mirror box. It was similar to like a shoe box. And there was, there was mirrors on, um, excuse me, every angle and they would put, so like it would, and it would, um, it would reach from like shoulder to shoulder. So a person will put their, their full intact hand into the shoe box so that it reflected, it, it cast its reflection onto the, their, their, the, the spot where their missing limb would be. So it gave the illusion as if they had both limbs and, um, he found he did controlled methods, uh, controlled studies and, um, um, he did the whole nine yards with this once he figured it out. Uh, but, and he found that the, in the vast majority of cases, people would, um, not only would they experience relief, um, of that neurological phantom limb, uh, they, it, it would feel as if their arm was fully functional again, but he had many patients bring this like mirror box home with them and study it or, uh, exercise with it, so to speak, like they were going to the gym and they would work on, reflecting their uh their missing limb and uh, creating that illusion for themselves very much like a ritual ceremony kind of thing um like shamanism and over time he found that these people the 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 phantom limb projection would shrink and in one case specifically which uh, is just the imagery is very cool uh one guy uh told the doctor that i think it was after like months of uh just continuous um discipline with this thing he was able to shrink the entire phantom limb to uh where he just had fingers coming out of his shoulder he had phantom fingers and at that point he couldn't get the angles to match up even a little bit it was just way out of gauge and so he couldn't get rid of the fingers um so he went back to the doctor and he's like yeah i, I don't know <laughs> let me know if you come up with a way to get rid of these fingers but in the meantime it's uh it's way better than having a full limb so, and so that's in, uh, the, st- uh, the sense of like a purging tension. Uh, but I think that goes both ways. Like in your sense, um, I mean, e- even in your sense, it was very much a, a purge of tension. And, um, I think that speaks to the power of the projection process. It goes much further than, than the human psyche, uh, is able to fully comprehend yet. They could make an easy tool uh, by scanning your uh, arm, let's say, and then if you have like uh, those uh, augmented reality glasses and you can see your arm basically on your... Wow, I didn't think about that yet. Yeah, you know what? I mean, that VR technology is is steamrolling. Like it's still in the beginning stages, but it's already getting pretty comprehensive. So before long... I bet you're right. I bet they will start doing things like that. That's things are going to get wild, man. Augmented reality and AI and VR. Who's to say what's going to happen from there? I also think that uh, in terms of just to, since we're on the topic with the the jaguar, because it it did represent uh, basically, you know, a jaguar is a jaguar. You can't le- you can't really bribe a, a jaguar to be something else. You can't really. I mean, it's a jaguar, and it's also symbolically. At least in the Amazon, it's considered. It's like in Africa, it's like the lion. It's like the top animal, you know. And it can uh, live in water, in the tree, and on ground, so it can move in all levels. So it's, it has a lot of respect. But uh, basically, w- the biggest part of my suffering was, you know, like when you when you experience samsara, like this constant birth and re- death and rebirth, and there's no meaning to anything and 
you have to go through it again and suffering and born you know if if you really at least in a psychedelic experience if you really experience that it can be really horrible like there's no end to it you know like i remember i was almost like tearing my skin and hair out because there there is no escape from the samsara and basically the jaguar is uh, you know like if you have integ if you stay uh, like pure and true to yourself like if you if you just you know if you just are like a jaguar then uh, you can then the samsara thing is not a problem you know like because you won't get lost in all this different distractions and things you just become like a, a rock yeah yeah absolutely and um you know that's that um that is such a huge point to make with the projection process in general i'd say because uh with that projection process in order to steer it and kind of transmute it into something more beneficial or golden um you need to have these ideals in mind you know like like a the platonic ideals the uh these alchemical archetypes you have to have some sort of gauge some um some ways with which to guide your perception and uh, and align yourself um otherwise if you're just if you just <laughs> throw yourself to the winds of um of chance and like statistical chaos then um you know you're not prepared you don't have some sort of mindset um you know, because it's one thing to experience the negative things. There's a purge involved, and that's natural. But if you don't have the reins in some kind of way, or are at least capable to um, to ride the wave back down when you finally start to come down, like from a uh, like a psychedelic, um, then you could really lose your, yourself and important parts of you. And in some ways, it can get uh, you know like very like Lovecraftian. You know, things can. Uh, things can get pretty horrific and um yeah it's uh but that's not to discourage people in general from using psychedelics i don't think that that should be a deterrent because i think if you um if you just uh if you're just prepared and you just take it with a, a you know a seriousness and you know it's definitely these things aren't meant to be party drugs by any stretch of the imagination so if you take it serious then um um, even if you have a negative trip, sometimes those are the best ones. Those are the ones where you learn about yourself even more and um, what to what to focus on and align yourself with, so that you don't, so that you're no longer uh, like mentally adjacent to these these negative things. Well, I, one thing that uh, psychedelics has provided to me, uh, and also actually alchemy in a sense, because uh, alchemy earliest you know the emerald tablet the earliest written text they say is by hermes that's why it's called hermeticism and hermes is the you know he's the trickster god uh, he's mercury he's the joker and also with psychedelics you know i mean most people who have tried psychedelics or had good experiences with it anyway they get this idea of it's all a joke or like don't take it too seriously or you know the cosmic joke so um, it, it's this kind of Joker quality, which is also why I like the comic book character, the Joker, not so much because like not the parts like he's killing people or doing things like that. It, it's the fact that he doesn't take anything really seriously. Absolutely. Um, the, yeah, uh, I'm curious um, on the note of um, projections in the 
in the psychedelic experience, especially with ayahuasca. I mean, you hear um, with ayahuasca so many recurring archetypes that people experience, like n- not just Mother Ayahuasca, but a whole host of others that um, the names aren't really coming to mind right now, but I know I've looked into it a little bit before. Uh, have you had any of those like very common motifs um, in your experiences? I don't know about motifs, but I know there's like 10, you can like, it's about 10 different experiences basically, and then they can be infinite in those, but there's like, you know, like the death experience or the you're transforming into something else experience or like seeing uh, God or Mother Ayahuasca or whatever you want to call it, you know, so this, you, know, you mean like that or do you mean visually? Um well, that was a really – I meant visually initially, but that was really interesting what you just said. Um, so I, I have both, really. I mean just um, – because I'm just fascinated with the fact that uh, – to explain the question a little more um, with uh, you know, just collective consciousness, so to speak, um, where when these drugs magnify the projection process, we find even more astonishing similarities between our own experiences – yeah, well, it's very common in ayahuasca to see snakes. And uh, as far as I understand, what the shamans down in, in the Amazon has told me is that uh, the snakes represent the ayahuasca. So, I mean, there was a girl who uh, only saw snakes and they told her it's because you're not drinking enough. I mean, it's trying to tell you to drink more. But uh, so apparently... But then every every tribe has different traditions, I guess, so I can't really speak for all of them. But uh, snakes or anacondas, usually anaconda is like a power animal. The jaguar is quite common. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, th- um, the plant teachers, the beings. And uh, they are uh, uh, quite uh, amazing because the thing is, what's weird, because... Before I did it, I was thinking it's like hallucination, but these uh, beings you see in the ayahuasca, they don't act like an hallucination. For instance, if if I see a being walk towards me and I turn away and I look somewhere else for a while and then I look back, it, it's still walking towards me, but it has moved from where it was before. You know, like... A hallucination doesn't have any sense of like movement in that way. <laughs> like the time I looked away was the, the distance it traveled when I looked back, you know, that kind of thing. And then also people, I haven't had that, but people see uh, dead relatives uh, and uh, also um, uh, they can see... Uh, uh, like depending, maybe sometimes depending on what they believe, but uh, like Buddha or Jesus or or what they call Mother Ayahuasca. Uh, so it's all different. And also the, the tricksters, you know, like the, it's almost like children, like, and they are not really there to give you any wisdom or insight. They're just like trick tricksters. Like, like one time one of them, like, uh, uh, gave me the finger, you know, which was quite a shock. <laughs> you know? So I don't know what they want. And then also people see like monsters of some sort, like like things that are scary. Yeah. Have you um have you ever had any experience with uh, iboga? Oh yeah, yeah. I've 
I, I went down to Gabon and did Iboga and uh, the thing that the thing I think is different from all the others is that what you see on Iboga is real meaning that you know even though I I've seen beings on the ayahuasca or even though I've seen uh, uh, you know if I've seen a, a, a jaguar or, or something like that on the ayahuasca uh, it's still psychedelic like maybe it's like glowing or maybe it's if it's a, a being maybe it's a bit alien looking or it's still like in the realm of science fiction or or bioluminescent or whatever but in the iboga it was real there was no like if i saw a, a being it was a man like looking as realistic as in reality or if I, I i did see a lion the lion looked exactly like a real lion there was no and there's no you know like uh, in psychedelics you can usually have like i call it the wallpaper like the background is always these like patterns or a grid grid or anything like that. I didn't experience that on the Iboga. It was basically just like... In fact, I, I have a, a short story to explain it. It's that I was laying there for a while. There was lots of people around me dancing and because there's a big ceremony and uh, dancing and walking around and singing. And uh, I was laying there for quite a long time and I'm thinking like, ah, oh, I, I didn't eat enough, you know. I don't have any effects. So I should have eaten more, and uh, but I said, "Ah, oh, I'll just lay here and enjoy it." But because I was also thankful that, because you're always afraid it's going to be too strong. So I was like, "Okay, at least it wasn't too strong." But it was at that point when I opened my eyes, <laughs> I I mixed up what I thought was real with what I saw, you know, because it was so real. And and that wouldn't have happened on ayahuasca. I could still doesn't matter what I experienced on the ayahuasca. I could still you know, uh, differentiate differentiate what I see with where I actually am. You know what I mean? Like, where I couldn't do that on the Iboga because I was completely lost in the... So I don't know if that's other people's experience, but... Um, and my friend, because it can last for days, you know, so it's a very long calm down. It can last for weeks for some people. Damn, really? I, I never knew that. It can last for weeks for some people? Yeah, uh, so you should really like, I mean, if you take a proper dose, you should really not like, you should really clear your schedule if you do it. But yeah, now I'm always um, especially interested in uh, people's perspectives on ayahuasca and iboga because of um, the uh, the intensity of those things. And, um, uh, and, and also the fact that I've definitely had my, uh, I've, I've had my fair share of experimentation with, um, with mushrooms and a little bit of um, LSD, but primarily psilocybin. And uh, but I've never, I've, I've just always assumed that something like that, like either ayahuasca or iboga, uh, if and when I ever try it, it'll, it'll, uh, it'll li- line itself up in my life, so to speak. But uh, uh, until then, I'm always very fascinated to hear people's stories. Um, and I have, um. Uh, th- some of the detail you go into is interesting and it's gonna like I'm gonna be looking into it a little more but just from from the the cursory knowledge that I have of iboga um, uh, experiences in general yeah it seems that that really is the case like ayahuasca is this very almost like etheric kind of you said like science fiction-esque sort of 
um, visual and perception state, but I have heard that Iboga is much more grounded and, um, um, yeah, in some ways I've heard it described some people as, um, uh, ayahuasca is like, you know, just, just as like a simple metaphor, it's almost like you going up into space and, um, um, Iboga is like burrowing deep inside you. I mean, you, you know, you could like, they're both explorations of your mental space, but in just in terms of how it feels oftentimes, that's how I've heard some people relate it to kind of bring this uh full circle a little bit, you know, just, uh, just fun, for fun, for the sake of conversation, I would really wager that, um, the more people took the, took the, uh, the dive, so to speak, into some sort of psychedelic experience, whether it's psilocybin or or um, uh, ayahuasca, um, like the the dimethyltryptamine. You know, if we're talking chemically, um, yeah, we we would find a much more disciplined, uh, tempered outlook in um, in this cancel this global cancel culture as we know it. Um, yeah, and uh, it, it it really. It, it, it really does touch on what you said about spiritual starvation, man, because yeah, we live in a, we definitely live in a world of spiritually starved people in general. Um, and you know, if anything, like that's, that's what the book is about. Um, you know, that was my personal journey, just trying to, um, yeah, understand my own motivations and my own, personality really and how I, I, I fit into everything. And, um, yeah, I, the more and more you look like it's, it's good to set a line and to not stand for injustices and to be politically and socially active. Uh, but yeah, before you point the finger, you know, it's like, it's like the old biblical saying, like, take the plank out of your own eye, um, before, before you start judging others. So, um, it's so true. And, and, you know, we were talking about like sexual, like identity politics before, like, again, you know, we already said this, but it's not to discredit anyone from doing what they feel like is necessary for their own individual liberties, whether that's just being gay or having a full sex operation for all I care. I don't care, you know, do you, but when you start, when you start, um, oh, pointing the finger at other people and saying that, like other people are wrong just for following their own personal outlook. Like how about we, um, how about we just let each other do our things and, um, and don't, don't cross each other unless there are, you know, specific offenses. Like, you know, someone's attacking you, you know, (laughs) I I think natural law dictates you can physically attack them as well, you know, in those kind of cases, but otherwise, you know, just live and let live and, Man, that's part of the psychedelic experience right there. Because I granted I do think that psychedelics can be abused. I mean, I I'm I'm sure you wouldn't disagree with that, but when it's used properly, it's um it's such a you know, it's one of those things where like I think it was Terrence McKenna who said um if you die without trying a psychedelic once, it's almost like dying a virgin. And it's like it's just one of those quintessential human experiences where I guess if you really don't want to do it then you know, no one's forcing you to, but why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you at least want to experience it and, um, find out what, what you can glean from that, from that process. But, you know, psychedelics of course, aren't the only way to 
to um, aid that sick soul, um, as some psychologists have put it, uh, that um, that like sad self within us. Um, you know, that's that's what art has been all throughout history. Um, in and 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 that's in the same way as uh, us, like us being led by those symbols, like I was saying before. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's more obvious, um, that we are, are led by these symbols, uh, in the psychedelic experience and in dreams than in anywhere else. Um, it's really interesting, the relationship between dreams and psychedelics, and then even like our perceptions and beliefs in death, you know, like the whole, in that sleep of death, what dreams may come Shakespearean idea. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, I, you know, when you look into the evolutionary scale and humans adapting all throughout history, you see that, um, dreams have very, very, they've always been very closely associated with our, our concepts of death. And, um, it's, it's likely the historical record shows thus far, at least that, I mean, humans, didn't really have much of um, a concept of the afterlife or any real, well, hardly any culture as they knew it for that matter until we started dreaming. And then dreaming was very much, I see dreaming very much as this sort of like people talk about the missing link in, uh, in, uh, on the evolutionary scale of human adaptation. And then some people jump to like ancient aliens and stuff. You know, I try not to be a naysayer. I don't have, uh, proof that aliens haven't existed, but Occam's razor tells me, or that they haven't visited because they surely exist somewhere in the cosmos. But Occam's razor says that, um, um, we probably did not have a <laughs> coming down and tinkering with us. There's just not, not the evidence for that. It really seems that there was just this massive inexplicable, um, uh, jump in our consciousness because we, we we had to rise to the occasion of certain evolutionary pressures, you know. Um, and there's even some psychological research uh, that is not it's not uh, minuscule. There's there's a lot of interesting data out there uh, to suggest that when we started dreaming and having these like analogical thought processes uh, with like the mirror neurons and um, the temporal lobe, like all these new adaptations, these physical adaptations, uh, that a lot of these experiences, a lot of these, these unconscious projections essentially came across as different things, like either disembodied voices or projected phenomena. Like if you think about it, before humans were already far along down the evolutionary path to be explicitly familiar with their artistic imaginative process if it's brand new what's to stop it from coming across as an entirely new physical real thing and um yeah i don't know when i first heard that i found that to be pretty mind-blowing because the more you think about it the more that's not really uh i mean that that's still a motif that uh that hangs with us to this day and again, especially when you look into something like a psychedelic experience, even that, that just goes back to what you were talking about, like seeing the, um, the spatial movement of these hallucinations and how like vividly they line up. One book you might like that uh, if you haven't already read it is called The Dead Saints Chronicles. It's a Zen journey through the Christian afterlife. 
is basically it's this guy who's uh, he researched 5000 near death experiences and then he he organized them and put them into different like uh, categories you know and it's a really interesting book and it, it, the reason it's a, uh, a journey through the christian afterlife is because it was done in america so what people tend to do is they tend to apply christian they project what they see they explain with christian symbolism but uh so it doesn't really matter if it's christian or not uh, what's interesting is that uh, the similarities between these different experiences and it's, it's really fascinating book uh, that i would recommend if you like uh, symbolism and and uh, that kind of thing uh, because it's so many i mean it's 5000 near death experiences so it's uh, it's not a small number, so it's, you get a good idea of what people might go through when they die. Yeah, I will definitely check that out. That's right up my alley. And uh, and the fact is, he 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 became uh, the the author became uh, he, he found out he was terminally ill, so he only had like fifteen months to to c- compile his research into the book, and then as soon as the book was done, he died. Oh wow, that's that's powerful. Wow. Good for him. That's uh, that's inspirational as well. Um, near death experiences are very, very fascinating, uh, to say the least. And I mean, it's all it's especially fascinating when you consider the fact that um, it it's a relatively new scientific advent that we can even have near death experiences. Um, surely there were some people who managed to come back um, through whatever process <laughs> maybe someone hit him on the head and it uh, brought it back or something just in the nick of time but generally speaking like all this you know resuscitation and everything else like it's very much an advent of of uh, modern science and it's really just in the last like 100 years or so maybe less um without looking at the dates in front of me right here uh like we've really been able to open up the whole spectrum of looking into um, near death experiences. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I do talk about in the book, uh, but we haven't touched on yet. And it really does. It just, you just add it to the list of associations, uh, with everything else that we've talked about. It's the same sort of projection, vivid imagery process. And, um, like even Jung, uh, had a very interesting near death experience where, he had some really brutal, uh, like he broke his foot somehow doing something, and it was a really, and this was like early 20th century or something, maybe mid 20th century at the very latest. So, fairly rudimentary medical uh, science still. So they had to put him under. I think they gave him some sort of like ketamine, like some sort of tranquilizer derivative, and so that probably helped with his um, his imagery experience. But he he did end up dying briefly before they resuscitated him and he had this whole experience. It just sounded like a classical psychedelic trip where he finds himself rising out of his body and he looks uh, until he gets into space and he looks over the globe and, um, and then he looks to space and he sees all these asteroids and stars and he sees one asteroid. I think that would be, yeah, because Comet's the one that's shooting. Uh, so he sees one asteroid just sitting there. Um, and it, it's like, it has like a cave entrance and it's like this, um, this ancient like shamanistic temple. So he floats, they, he etherically floats over there and he gets in there and, you know, there's all the candles. It's very, very traditionally like shamanistic. And, uh, says when he gets into the temple at the, um, 
like just inside the entrance, there's um there's a Hindu um like Swami, I guess you would say, like sitting on a lotus and um and he's communicating with Jung telepathically, telling him that he's dead now and you know, like welcome to the temple. Like once you go beyond me, go to the on the other side of the door behind me, you're gonna meet like the council. It almost sounds very Egyptian in the sense of like weighing like the heart with the feather and um and like you're gonna know you're gonna you're gonna have a full understanding of what you experienced in your regular life and then when the Jung is like he's pretty he's pretty stoked this all sounds very interesting and then from behind him as he's facing the 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 swami he sees like the the etheric like soul projection essentially of his doctor um and he has a he talks with the the doctor and the doctor's like um He's he's like yeah sorry man we got word from the big man that uh it's, it's not your time yet like you still have things to do down here so they they yank him back and uh Jung said he almost had something like <clears throat> if I could use this very loose metaphor it's almost something like well let me think um because it's, it's it's not quite uh like post traumatic in the sense of like watching someone die or something but there is that sort of traumatic effect i mean you you almost died and and he said um that for for weeks afterward he felt like the whole material world was nothing more than like a puppet show just like a box with um uh or, or like a theater piece or something just very staged and tacky and uh it say it took him a while to find a zeal for for life again after after experiencing those very very intense vivid uh, things in that between realm state. And, um, you know, it's interesting in the Tibetan book of the dead, they say that Bardo, you know, in between the, the, the death and the reincarnation is supposed to be 49 days. And curiously enough, as far as modern science can show us at this point in time, it, uh, you can't really determine the, um, the, the genetic sex of a baby until seven weeks, which is like 49 days. So, so I wonder about those things. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm also interested in that thing where they weighing the heart and that. And I always say to people who believe in hell that uh, what I think will happen is way worse than hell. Is that you, if you've been a bad boy in your life, you know, when you die, you're going to, you know, when you meet, because I think that you will remember where you came from as soon as you die you like you, you it's kind of like waking up in a sense and it will be really embarrassing you know <laughs> you know like because you're like oh no what did i do you know like if you did bad things yeah for sure like waking up uh after a drunken night of debauchery and you're like oh god what did i just do <laughs> yeah absolutely i um um, as far as my spiritual beliefs are concerned, um, I completely agree. I think that there's a, um, I think that we continue to have, uh, you know, a multiplicity of existences beyond this one. And, um, I think that, I think that karma is certainly a real thing, but I, uh, so many people misunderstand what the what the real implications, like what the message of karma is. And it's not like, you know, people boil it down to kind of like the rudimentary, like the, the, uh, the improper 
simplifications of like law of attraction and stuff. And it's more, um, it's more nuanced as, as we already discussed with that topic. Um, and, um, you know, because it's, it's not to say that like you do good and you're always going to get good. Karma is more of the, um, the, uh, the exchange between the microcosm and the macrocosm, you know, your own existence and, um, the world around you. Um, and that's not to say you can't find parallels and learn to work with that in the, in the Taoist kind of sense. But, um, yeah, things aren't always straightforward and good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. Um, I think actually karma could work in a way that like, for simplicity's sake, let's say you're like a serial rapist, and then when you die and you're reborn, then you are reborn into the victim, you know? Right, right. I was, yeah, I was just about to say that. I think you're right. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's some real truth to that, and especially with science today, opening the door to uh, parallel universes and like different kinds of parallel universes. Like we could have timelines, or we could have space being so absolutely vast that on a on a unfathomable distance away from us on some opposite corner of the cosmos statistically speaking there could be something that is exactly the same as us so you have potential physical parallel universes and this sort of uh multiple timeline thing and that's not to mention um other types of potential extraterrestrial things like there's probably so much life out there when you consider all the variables of time and space. Like I really, uh, and, and with how powerful and even viral consciousness seems to be, I really can't imagine that, um, that this would be it. And that, and, and especially when you take into account thermodynamics and chaos theory, which is very, very scientific, uh, chaos theory only lends to the possibility that, um, that there are, that energy can um, not only that energy is not only uh, uh, like not created nor destroyed, just recycled, but that it can um, hold a sense of integrity to it. You know, like because people say, if you're talking about uh, if you're really analyzing reincarnation, you could say that your like electromagnetic bodily activity certainly would not just. Uh, or, or might not at least die in your body, but it could be like absorbed into the environment. But again, I mean, if we're being very scientific about it, the jury's not out on that either. It's it's just as possible, even with the material knowledge we have, that um, that whatever like this type of kind of like a radio wave, like maybe you aren't tuned into the radio wave and you're experiencing static because you're on a different channel, but that doesn't mean that the radio wave is not existing. It's still out there broadcasting in a unified, uniform sort of way. I, I think, you know, because the brain waves are very literally hertz waves like radios. So I think that, I think there's, well, we still have to vet that out if we ever want a further scientific understanding of it. Uh, science only seems to open the door more to um to what you would call an afterlife in the long run so if people want to to read your book and get it where can they do that um i finally i long last set up a website um i uh you could have gone to amazon beforehand or hit me up on twitter and you still can do both of those things but now you can go to divemind.net um and i got all my other interviews there um and 
some basic information about me if anyone wants. You know, it's just kind of like a one-stop shop type deal. And you could get the paperback book, um, you know, Dive Manual, Empirical Investigations of Mysticism, or you can get the uh, – and that's $10, or you could get the digital copy, and that's $3. Um, but, I mean, I mean, in the long run, um, you know, I uh, – I, I have to make a little bit of money in order to, to put it out there. Like if we're, if we're speaking in terms of print, cause there's print costs and everything, but I really tried to make it as inexpensive as possible. You know, like I could have made the book $20 if I was, if I was a total a-hole, but, uh, just to p- plenty of new age people, not that I'm new age, but there are plenty of, uh, people in this kind of like metaphysical research that are really just snake oil salesmen and trying to make money. And the book is open source. You know, I have, I have citations throughout the book, uh, I have a, a, a bibliography at the end that's almost 200 sources long. So I'm really not trying to sell people on a specific spirituality. I'm not um, I'm not trying to create any sort of spirituality. I mean, it's all, like I said, very, very Jungian. There's a lot of tradition involved here, but I'm trying to push the envelope by oh, bridging the gap as much as I possibly could. Uh, with the res- with the modern understanding we have, uh, bridging the gap of our scientific understanding and our our spiritual mystical understanding. So, so this book really, if there's any sort of running spiritual motif, it's alchemy. But I mean, this it, it's not geared towards anything specific in general, whether it be Christian or Buddhist or anything. So, I um. Um, yeah, no agendas here. I, I encourage anyone to, to take a look at it if they like. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm around, you can find me on some social media. You can hit me up on, um, send me an email. My email's on the website. So if you have any questions or anything, um, and thank you very much for having me on, man. This was a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you for being on the podcast. Um, yeah, and let me know if you ever want to do this again sometime. Um, I'm always happy to talk to a fellow alchemist especially, so I'm sure we could, uh, we could talk about plenty more in the future. Check out Anthony's site, divemind.net. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a nice review on iTunes and uh, share it in social media. Now, I don't know what age you are, but if you were a teenager in the 90s, you might have heard the song I'm about to play. This is a cover of the song Fade Into You by Massey Star, and it's covered by Frank Watkinson. Freedom is in the mind. I want to hold the hand inside you. I want to take the breath that's true. I look to you and I see nothing I look to you to see the Fade.
strange you never knew fade into you I think it's strange you never knew Stranger's light comes on slowly A stranger's heart without a home You put your hands into your head And then smiles cover your Fade 